You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey everyone, it's James Kruppi with the Oregonian and Oregon Live, bringing you another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast, where we'll get into Oregon baseball's NCAA Regional, where the Ducks get to host starting this weekend against Central Connecticut, and then we'll play either the winner or loser of Gonzaga and LSU, depending on who wins and loses those opening games on Friday night. We'll also take a look back on Oregon's softball season and some of the transfers that have already occurred here as the season has come to a wrap. But we will begin with Oregon baseball and what has been already a terrific season, a really monumental turnaround. I realize that when we talk about turnarounds uh, in 2021, it's hard to do in the context of the 2020 season because it was cut short and before conference play. So you really didn't know what to make of 2020 is it a turnaround when Oregon was eight and seven to start 2020 were they going to have a good year were they going to have a kind of middle of the conference year but potentially be a bubble team for the NCAA tournament were they going to have a rough year we'll never know I mean and that goes for every team in the country even the top teams who were undefeated we'll have no idea how 2020 was so if we talk about turnarounds in the context of Oregon baseball this is still all relative to the previous staff and the previous tenure prior to Mark Wazikowski getting hired as head coach. So obviously the foundation for which was laid in 2020, but the full results of which are being seen in 2021. And as further context for the accomplishments that the Ducks have been able to to pull off this season, bearing in mind that This team and other teams around the country, but especially this team and Oregon State for that matter, had to operate under more strict and stringent restrictions in the fall than a lot of their competition around the country. You know, Waz talked about this in the fall about they couldn't have base running drills with fielders so they basically couldn't do true base running and leading off a first base for example because the first baseman and the base runner weren't allowed to be around each other for a prolonged period of time and obviously he joked at the time about kind of a big important you know factor in baseball being able to (laughs) 
run the bases. And you know, now we're able to chuckle a little bit, uh, a little bit. Again, we're not fully out of the, the woods just yet, obviously, uh, with, with all the situation. But the point is, is given what this team in particular, and yes, again, Oregon State as well or any other team in the state, had to deal with in the fall relative to other competition in the Pac-12, relative to other competition across the country, and especially as a team who managed to secure a top 16 seed and the opportunity to host an NCAA regional, it's remarkable that the Ducks have been able to do this this season. There's nothing short of remarkable. Incredible turnaround. And then furthermore, to add to it, remember that the opening series for the season was canceled and canceled due to COVID protocols related to Oregon's program. Now, obviously, it didn't end up having any substantive impact other than the cancellation of those games and the lack of availability in the following weekend, the season, what became the season opening weekend in late February against Seattle, where the Ducks won the first two games, the first one in walk-off fashion, and then lost the second two and split the series with Seattle, which ended up harming them in RPI rather significantly. But Kenyon Yovan wasn't available that whole weekend. Robert Alstrom, the ace of the pitching staff, wasn't available that entire weekend. And Cullen Kafka and Brett Walker, the number two and three starters for this team, were limited in terms of pitch counts because they were returning uh, from protocol that weekend. So when you factor in what this team what this program had to go through in 2020 uniquely in that it was a team and a program going through a coaching change from the prior year and that the foundational elements for this season were really being laid at that time. And then, all right, how many teams around the country had new coaches that year? I don't have the final count of that, but obviously not the majority not even you know probably 10 percent of teams uh definitely less than 10 percent of teams had new coaches across the country so when you factor that in and then the restrictions in the fall and then the start of the season being impacted by protocols and to see that this team finishes second in the pac-12 by a game And ends up securing not only a postseason bid, but a postseason hosting of a regional. As I say, absolutely remarkable. And add to it to the next layer, especially for those who are now that it's reaching the postseason, paying more attention to the team, to the program, to the state of things, that this is not a roster that saw this monumental scale of overhaul from two years ago. The roster in terms of the major starters and contributors to this Ducks baseball team are not wildly different than who the major contributors were in 2019. Again, we're not going to go back to last year in 20 because it was such a short season. That's, that's this borderline statistical irrelevancy. Uh, depending on who you're referring to. But when you want to go back to the 2019 season, for example, 
yes, obviously Spencer Steer moved on, started his professional career, got drafted into Major League Baseball. He was the leading hitter in 2019. But they had to replace him. Well, who were the other top hitters on the team when, of course, Jovan was out that year? Sam Nowitzki, still at the team. Gabe Matthews, still at the team. Tanner Smith, still at the team. Aaron Zavala, still at the team. Johnny DeLuca, okay, he moved on. Evan Williams, still with the team, different capacity. Uh, now in a much more diminished and coming off the bench role, but nevertheless. Taylor Adams, okay, he moved on. Cameron Campbell moved on. Max Foxcroft moved on. Outside of that, like I say, the majority of the starting lineup, and then I'll, I'll throw Jovan in there, of course, where of course he was hurt. But my point is, is a very substantial portion of the lineup that you see out there today for the Ducks is not any different than the lineup that you saw two years ago. Or in the areas that it is different, at catcher, for example, Jack Scanlon has brought tremendous defense in this past weekend, brought quite a bit of offense. But on the season, his numbers are not better than what Jacob Goldfarb was doing in 2019. It's not even close. So, I mean, Goldfarb is sitting over 300 for the season in 19. So point is, is even in the areas where the Ducks are different, you could argue that statistically speaking, the changes are at a lower level statistically on the offensive side of things for the where there's changes. Now, there's players who maintain the same, are still here from 2019 who have seen big jumps. That's been the difference on the pitching side as well. Robert Alstrom led Oregon in ERA in 2019, but his record was five and seven. He had 61 strikeouts to 73 and a third innings. Gave up nine home runs. Ryan Nelson was second. He got drafted. Nico Telesche still the team. Cullen Kafka, Brett Walker, guys I mentioned, still with the team. Yeah, a bunch of guys out of the bullpen. Some are similar, some are different. Colby Summers, Hunter Bro, Peyton Fuller, those guys specifically, they're all still with the team. Yeah, but many of them have seen enormous statistical jumps. Their roles didn't necessarily change. Their performances, their individual development, over the past two years, has been enormous. In some cases, it's been skyrocketing. In the case of Zavala, in particular, who leads the Ducks batting just under 400 on the season. Overall, if you want to make it for conference play only, uh, Aaron Zavala is hitting 380 in Pac-12 play on the season. tremendous jump from two years ago for him. Now, he's not alone. Now, Josh Kasovich, all right, he's an addition relative to a couple of years ago. Nowitzki's numbers on batting average are down from two years ago. Gavin Grant, new player in the lineup. Scanlon, I mentioned before, they're the bottom three guys in the batting order. Anthony Hall, newer player in the lineup. At different times of the year, when he caught fire, he was playing great offensively and brings a lot defensively. But the biggest difference has been the surge from Zavala, 
the return of Jovan at a high level, particularly in the power numbers, obviously. Matthews being the level of consistency and raising his level as a whole. And Josh Kasovich joining this lineup and providing some pop as well. And especially so, as much as the offense is done, and to take nothing away, believe me, this is a probably longer lineup than it was in 2019. Certainly more potent than it was in 2019. But the biggest difference, by far, is the pitching. And like I say, it's mainly the individual performances from those same pitchers. When your weekend trio all has ERAs under four, and two of them have ERAs under three, Alstrom has given up four home runs on the season. Remember, that was about nine two years ago. Has 86 strikeouts in 82 innings this season. An 8-3 and three record. Brett Walker, 6-2 and two record. Kellen Kafka, 5-3 and three record. All three weekend starters winning records on the season. In terms of league play, they still all have 500 or better records on the season. And Colby Summers and his ascent out of the bullpen where he has seven saves in Pac-12 play. Remarkable. He has a 3.06 ERA in Pac-12 play. If you go back to take a look at what his numbers were from a couple of years ago and see where he is now, it is a massive difference in a actually smaller number of innings because he began his career as a starter. Moved to the closer role, and in 35 and two-third innings in 2019, he had an ERA over eight and a half. Colby in 22 and a third innings this season has an ERA of (laughs) 2.42 overall. And like I say, you have to laugh. Strikeout numbers almost identical, 31 versus 30, but in 50% less innings. Now, I'm going to be writing up this week about how Oregon staff was able to accomplish that with some of these players specifically, Colby Summers being one of them, Robert Alstrom being one of them, and how this staff was able to use a lot of the same pieces, the same personnel, And while it's easy to say, well, players got older and with age and experience naturally comes increased production and improved performance, sounds great. And in college sports, that certainly as a trend is, generally speaking, very strong correlation. But it's not a a complete lock and certainty. It's not a given. The players still have to accomplish that. You know, regression is allowed too. And in the case of the top performers and some of the most critical pieces on this team, everyone was on the ascent. And like I say, many of them have accomplished it in huge ways. Now, again, not not the entire lineup, not 100% of the lineup, not every single player. Like I say, case in point, Sam Nowitzki's average from two years ago is higher than his average this season. That said, still having relative success, but... 
just not at the same level from a batting average standpoint as he was two years ago. So that really just underscores my point that it's not a given that everybody just, oh, well, with more time, more bats, more games, obviously they're going to play better. Well, maybe they will and maybe they won't. And maybe they'll have some hiccups along the way. Maybe the opponents will adjust better to that player either hitting off a pitcher or pitching to a hitter, whatever the circumstance may be, from year to year, week to week, whatever the case is. The point is, this team, some of the major pieces on this team were the same core pieces from two years ago. And that team, obviously, did not achieve anywhere near the scale of success. So for what this team has been able to do, been absolutely remarkable. The Ducks will host the regional, as I say, starting this weekend, starting Friday, Friday afternoon. Oregon will play Central Connecticut, and LSU and Gonzaga will play Friday night. And the schedule for the rest of the weekend, uh, we'll get that to you. So that way, uh, in case you haven't seen it already on Oregon Live, you can check it out uh, there. But uh, to give it to you here as well, the schedule for the rest of the weekend on Saturday in the loser's bracket game actually happens first. That will be at 1 o'clock on Saturday uh, where the loser of that is completely eliminated from the regional. Then the winner's bracket game. So if Oregon beats Central Connecticut, it will play the winner of Gonzaga and LSU. In the winner's bracket game, 7 o'clock on Saturday night. The winner of the loser's bracket game plays the loser of the winner's bracket game in the second elimination game of the weekend. That will be at 3 o'clock on Sunday. And the winner of that game turns around and plays immediately thereafter against the 2-0 and team from the winner's bracket, whoever that may be. You know, again, either Oregon, LSU, Gonzaga, or Central Connecticut, uh, which... From an RPI standpoint and seeding standpoint, will certainly be a team that many people look past. I I get that, uh, especially on a name brand and recognition standpoint. Uh, but when, you know, you, <laughs> doesn't mean anything to me uh, in terms of I'm not looking past anybody. It doesn't suit me to do that. You'd be real, realistic. They have not certainly played the caliber of competition that Oregon, Gonzaga, or LSU have this season. But they made the tournament. And, you know, there's something to be said for that. So, uh, and if you look at the numbers that the team has had, obviously it's all relative based on the competition that they played, again. But some of the numbers are pretty good. So, you know, again, you don't don't underestimate the opponent. Once you get into postseason play and wins and losses can mean the difference uh, between advancing or the end of your season. And that's, you know, the margin for error is so non-existent. You don't look past anybody. Don't look past anybody at this time of year home field or not one seed versus four seed or not national seed or not don't look past these opponents so again should be a entertaining and fun weekend for all intents and purposes as of tuesday morning the regional is virtually sold out there's a handful of tickets available in the fully vaccinated seating sections behind home plate of pk park but they're all uh, kind of Lucy's. They're all one uh, solo tickets that are spread out. I don't know if Oregon's ticket office will do anything to 
realign or reconfigure to try and pair a couple of those seats together and and kind of move some some parties around a little bit to accommodate that or not or i i don't know what their what their deal is i i, I don't know i i can't speak for them um so if you plan on going and going alone uh i'd say act now and act in a hurry because those tickets may go in a hurry otherwise uh in the uh, physically distance seating section there were two blocks of four tickets apiece as of 6 a.m tuesday but again those tickets could be well on their way out as well and lsu for fans out here who uh, obviously i know they played at oregon state a couple of years ago in a regional uh so some people may be familiar uh in the region and in the state uh with that fan base uh for baseball they have averaged the nation lead in attendance at alex box stadium at lsu for years and years and years and years um basically since as long as attendance records will go back uh from an ncaa tracking standpoint they average over ten thousand people per game they are far and away uh the most avid college baseball fan base in the country uh lsu vanderbilt arkansas all have a lot of the sec teams they're not alone in that regard but a lot of the sec teams have it but lsu is on a different level they just are and airfares have gone up enormously out of Louisiana, from uh, mainly from New Orleans uh, to Eugene for the weekend. It's starting on Thursday in order to be here for the Friday games. So people are making the trip, and, and people are going to be making the flights out. And I guarantee you there is going to be a caravan. Of, I don't know how big the caravan will be, but there will be a caravan of LSU fans who do make the drive all the way out to the Pacific Northwest. Uh, because not just because they're having about college baseball and they love LSU baseball, but this is also a historic uh, postseason for LSU baseball and that their legendary coach, Paul Maneri, has announced that he'll be retiring at the conclusion of this season. Uh, and he obviously has had a absolutely illustrious career. He is the highest paid coach in college baseball. He's won a national championship, won numerous SEC regular season, and... Uh, tournament championships hosted so many regionals super regionals you name it uh, made it to Omaha multiple times so again has done just a one, one of the most storied careers in college baseball coaching uh, over 1500 career wins not all at LSU he's been there for 14 years uh, but he's again just a, a remarkable coach uh, and a, a true uh, legend of the sport uh, and someone whose career is going to be coming to a close at the end of this season, potentially this weekend, uh, if Oregon has its way and it's able to hold serve at home uh, and as the regional host, uh, then LSU's season and Paul Maneri's, uh coaching career at LSU, at the very least, uh, will be coming to a close. So it's a big weekend for LSU baseball. And having said that, they're a loaded team. They have a projected first-round pick. Uh, and while they are not the team that they have been in most recent uh, other recent years, they are still a unbelievably good ball club. And <laughs> like I say, they're uh, in terms of opposing fan bases who may travel, they are one of the few teams who will actually bring not just some fans uh, on the road with them; they will bring a good number of fans with them. And I'm not going to say fully neutralize a home field advantage uh and i don't know what the exact exact seating limitations will be at pk park for the weekend and maybe if even 
if, if some of the restrictions are even lowered over the course of the week, what that may adapt or change to. But the bottom line is, whatever it is, they will travel. Uh, I, they are definitely going to travel and bring quite the environment to P-Pig Park. So it should be a lot of fun. Uh, obviously, again, what Oregon baseball has been able to accomplish already this season is remarkable. Uh, they are, by any objective measure, they are ahead of quote-unquote schedule uh, in terms of a rebuild, in terms of reaching a po- not just reaching a postseason, but to host a regional. Uh, even on the NCAA selection show on Monday, even their announcers saying this team that kind of came out of nowhere. And yeah, they're right. You know, remember, they were picked to finish seventh by the coaches in the Pac-12. They're the number 14 national seed, three of which were Pac-12 teams, which, of course, Arizona being number five and Stanford being in there as well. So they finished second in the league on the regular season and get a national seed when in the preseason they were picked to finish seventh. They not only exceeded expectations from the outside on the season, if we're going to be totally honest, they exceeded expectations internally insofar as the big picture of reaching this level of accomplishment as a program in Mark Wazikowski's second season, first full season with a postseason involved. Uh, to make it to, again, not just make it to a postseason, but to host a regional and finish second in the league. If we're going to be, again, really honest here, they've exceeded expectations in that regard. So, again, a a tremendous job by all involved. Uh, Been a a tremendous story and a story that we certainly look to uh, delve into a bit further uh, in various different stories over the course of the week on OregonLive.com, so you can certainly check out numerous stories, as I mentioned already. We'll have pieces on uh, Colby Summers, Robert Alstrom, uh, and I may look to have uh, some on some of the offensive players as well, uh, some of the batters who have had quite the market jump uh, in statistics over the past couple of seasons and how they were able to accomplish this in helping this Ducks team reach this point. And lastly, on baseball, uh, for those who... Uh, just hadn't seen it in terms of, okay, well, if you're able to make it this weekend or even if you're not, if you're watching from home, what happens if Ducks move on? What happens for the following weekend? Not to get ahead of yourselves, but just to you know be aware in terms of the bracket for those who may not have seen it. Uh, Oregon's regional was paired with the Tennessee regional as the 14 seed. They're paired with the three. So with that in mind, realistically speaking, should Oregon win its regional in advance, it will almost certainly be playing in Knoxville in a super in a best of three super regional a week and a half from now. But again, that's you know, let that be something that we're discussing on Sunday night, planning for or whatever. Uh, first things first, deal with the fact that hosting a regional, appearing in the postseason for the eighth time in program history. Uh, hosting for the you know for the first time in quite a while, uh, and making this kind of as I say massive uh, turnaround, and doing it so early, uh, and Wasikowski's tenure as coach, deal with that, deal with the here and now, deal with what 
and and confront what will be a should be a great environment at PK Park and should LSU win on Friday to set up a matchup with Oregon on Saturday what could be a truly outstanding environment on Saturday on one hand Gonzaga I believe is actually the two seed of the <laughs> of the two by RPI they certainly should be um but regardless in terms of environment and I have no doubt there'll be some Gonzaga fans who make the trip but in terms of environment I think a LSU Oregon game uh it should it occur at all this weekend whether it be Saturday Sunday or Monday for that matter would be truly outstanding but again we'll see how the weekend unfurls uh, again a remarkable job so far a great year and hey were they also obviously hoping to contend for a Pac-12 title and they contended for it all the way into the, the second to last day of the season is when things ultimately got counted out but this team gave itself a shot all the way until the end how in the world can you complain about that when you were picked to finish seventh in the preseason? I mean, come on now. So they, again, what they've been able to accomplish, I've said it plenty of times already. I'll keep saying it. Remarkable job. To Oregon softball and the season that was for the Ducks uh, on the softball diamond. Also a strong year. Remember that for all the restrictions that baseball was going through in the fall. Same thing applied for softball as well. And so they were dealing with that uh, and obviously had some player absences during the course of the season due to some protocols as well, some game interruptions uh, for opponents uh, mainly due to protocols and issues as well. One of the few teams in the Pac-12 who got all of its games in as scheduled uh, for Oregon. So again, obviously a challenging year for everybody. Having said that, to finish strong in the league in terms of overall standing, this was, you didn't know entirely what to make of this team necessarily going into the year. Knew that things were going to be quote-unquote better, that they have a solid record from 2020 before everything got paused and, and the rest of the season canceled. Yeah, they were 22-2 and two overall. However, how many of those wins, if you're going to be honest, were really over teams that were going to be making it to the postseason? Not a lot. Long Beach State, probably. Maybe. Maybe. Mississippi State, certainly. Maybe Northwestern, who was ranked at the time. A extra inning loss to Oklahoma State is a very good team. And that's it. So out of the 22-2 and record that Oregon had in the shortened 2020 season, one of the losses was to a nationally ranked team who now is off to the Women's College World Series this season. Another was to a Louisville team that was a, it was a one-run game, so you, know, you can't make a ton of that, to be honest. And... Louisville was not as good this year, but I don't you know. Again, who knows what 2020 would have had in store for them exactly. And they had a couple of nice wins. But out of 22 and 2, out of 24 games, maybe only four or five were games that, if there was a full 2020 season that come 
selection Sunday for college softball. Maybe only four or five of those games really are huge resume builders. The rest would have just been quadrant four games. You know, pounding Idaho State or Bethune-Cookman or Dayton or Houston, George Washington, Utah Valley. Those weren't games that we're going to get looked back on very fondly. Uh, now, was it important still to a, what was a rebuild and a team that needed to, after obviously the challenges of 2019, to build confidence, settle on a lineup, settle on an order, and figure out exactly what all the new pitchers brought to the table? Absolutely. Absolutely. No point in going out there and having just a loaded juggernaut schedule if you're not going to be having any success or enough success to build confidence for when league play came around. So I can understand that. All right, well, obviously we know how 2020 went. Fine. Well, now you get to this year. And all in all, pretty good year on the regular season. really was. Now, when Oregon moved all the way up at one point to number two in the polls, I was saying at the time, look, what they've accomplished is very nice. But they had a massive portion of their schedule in non-conference play through no fault of their own. This was really due to travel restrictions and uh, regional proximity and things due to COVID. But the caliber of the non-conference competition was very, very weak outside of the non-conference games against UCLA at the end of February and early March. Virtually everyone else on Oregon's non-conference schedule, including Oregon State and Utah, for that matter, in non-conference games, were irrelevant. Those were the games that they were supposed to win. So when they were winning by run rules, when they were uh, really putting up a lot of big offensive numbers and crooked numbers on the scoreboard, that's what they were supposed to do. The split with UCLA was a really strong sign of encouragement. And in hindsight, the two wins over Fresno State were two of Oregon's better wins, and certainly a non-conference play other than the UCLA games, the best non-conference wins that they could have really asked for for teams that were also based on the West Coast that weren't in the Pac-12. Because there were not very many top 50 RPI teams that Oregon could have even scheduled, that anybody in the Pac-12 could have scheduled home or road in the mountain or Pacific time zones. There just weren't. So then we get to Selection Sunday. Well, how come Arizona and Arizona State got the seedings that they got? Well, because they played a handful of non-conference games in either Texas or Florida or Oklahoma or had those teams come to them, and they were able to make that work, whereas Oregon and Washington were not, and they were penalized accordingly in terms of seeding. All right, well, obviously we know how it goes in the regional round. A tough start for the Ducks, but at the same time, they rebounded. They made it to the regional final. They dealt with the rain delay. So did Texas. They play and put together what was five hours, back-to-back games, forced the deciding winner-take-all game that started obviously very late on that Sunday night and put together five hours of extremely intense 
competitive college softball. And they won one by a run on a walk-off. And they lost one with a tying run on third base. And the win and the go-ahead run aboard. They gave themselves a shot. They gave themselves not just a shot, they gave themselves a pretty good shot. And when facing elimination, they forced the winner take all. They were right there. They were a good team. They were a very good team. That when playing at its peak, could play great. The question entering the postseason with the margin for error being so thin, not just in general because it's the postseason, but for a team that was constructed the way Oregon softball was constructed, was with a margin for error that was going to be so, so thin, where they were going to need Brook Inez to be almost untouchable to win games. Would she be able to, against whoever the top-level competition was, would she be able to do it back-to-back games? And secondly, would the offense be able to give her just enough run support to pull it off? Because when she's at her best, she is capable of matching up against any pitcher in the country and giving her team a chance to win. And she did that all season. And she did that in regional play. And she gave that to Oregon in a big way. In a very big way. And the play, obviously, that she had on Saturday night and the game against Texas State in particular was absolutely outrageous. Uh, the fielding of the bunt and uh, being able to completely stop her momentum and, and change on a dime uh, to be able to fire to third to get a lead runner there in a critical play. And then obviously, uh, again, in the first game against Texas and go to extras and play as well as she did, tremendous. Absolutely tremendous. Offensively, they come through late. They force the winner take all. And hey, again, it's a one nothing game. I, how how can you fault? But the pitching? No, obviously not. Credit to Texas. Its pitcher had a well-executed game plan to induce a ton of ground balls and got them. Pounded the bottom of the zone, even when the zone itself was really a bit high. And it was high for both teams. But nevertheless, for a pitcher who wants to get ground balls, that was a bit of a challenge, and yet they did it well. It's a one-run game. Not going to win them all. And Rachel Sid gives Oregon a chance with a leadoff double, and they get two aboard. Runners at the corners with nobody out, and they come up just short. But that's sport. You're not going to win them all. It happens. Disappointing? Oh, disappointing in the nature because of how dramatic a turnaround and, and because of, obviously, the 
drama between the programs and the teams and whatnot. And while it was certainly not overly built up from either side during the course of the week, it really wasn't. I know Mike White's comments drew a lot of uh, attention, but I didn't think anything that he said was by any means outrageous. He was just pointing out that the seeding, really for either side, was not terribly just. That the matchup of it was being done for not totally on its merits. I think a lot of people felt that way. <laughs> not just uh, you know Oregon fans or not just Texas fans. I think both fan bases felt that way. And he happened to express it. Having said that, the idea that once it was all over, oh, well, you know, it was more... It may have been manufactured by the committee in terms of the matchup, but you know it really didn't necessarily. Some of the some of the feelings maybe were uh, not as high uh, for those who were most directly involved as as maybe we were either thought or led to believe or what have you. Well, that's just not true. It's just simply not true. And if you need any evidence of that, take a look and see what was posted after the game. And again, nothing inflammatory, nothing derogatory, nothing. But bottom line is the players who used to play here, who obviously transferred to Texas to play for Mike White and continue their careers playing for him, they were loyal to him. They wanted to continue to play for him. They're enjoying their time there. And they still harbor some feelings about it. And that's fine. That's allowed. No, it shouldn't be shouldn't be treated as a surprise. The season comes to a close. Some players go in the portal. I know I feel like a broken record at times in taking on the issue of player transfers. Whether it's men's basketball, women's basketball, baseball, softball, football, whatever the sport may be. But it seems like there is a knee-jerk reaction from, and I'm not just going to say Oregon fans, from fans in general, because it's not just about one team or one fan base. It's not. It's not. That That's unfair to say. Because the portal is still relatively new, I know it's been around for a couple of years, but there wasn't a ton of movement necessarily during the course of 2020 when everything got cut short. And now that the one-time transfer is there for everybody, so you're going to see it a lot more in football, certainly. There is a knee-jerk reaction to transfers that if a certain number of players transfer, particularly if a starter transfers, it must be representative and emblematic of underlying problems that show that there's major issues in a program. I understand and respect that fans can have that perspective. However, I think some of this is still a syndrome and symptom of the fact that whatever team you follow, you see the headlines and the transfers related to the team that you follow. And you're not necessarily seeing 
all the headlines and the names of the teams that you don't follow, which is fine. I'm not expecting anybody to keep up with all this stuff on a day-to-day. It's a ton to keep up with. It, it's understood. But to have this notion that, well, three or four women's basketball players transfer and a couple of them were starters or significant contributors, so therefore there must be major issues. And then prominent players come in and that's treated as, oh, well, that's natural. Sorry, so that's totally a one-way street. And by the way, when there's one-third of men's college basketball players were in the transfer portal already this offseason. And over a 1,000 women's basketball players in the transfer portal this offseason. And for college softball, as of Tuesday, nearly 600 players are in the transfer portal. Now, are all of them on scholarship? No. Are all of them in their power five? No. All of them, all conference players? No. But the fact is, is the count late Monday was 596 college softball players are in the transfer portal. To make it that, oh, well, Oregon had three players enter the portal after the season was over, and therefore this must be a huge problem. Why? Why is it any bigger a problem for them as it is for anybody else? Transfers are an issue in college sports. They're going to happen. They're going to continue to happen. There may be a market correction in the relative sense in the next year or two or three. But in college softball, the one-time transfer is not the new rule change. It's not. In baseball, it is. In football, men's and women's basketball, it is. So we'll see how it adjusts and, and how many players ultimately may end up making decisions that don't pan out as well as they had hoped. And they end up going in the portal and not finding either a home at all for a new program or maybe not certainly not the caliber program that they were hoping for. But they're free to do that. And that's not referring to or alluding to any player's who may have left Oregon specifically at all. Obviously, the uh, players who chose to leave from Oregon football overwhelmingly have ended up at other FPS programs, some in the Power Five, some in the Group of Five. A couple have gone down to either junior college or FCS, but as a whole, players have moved on there. Almost all of them have, this offseason, almost all of them have landed up at new spots. Men's basketball, those who left also ended up in pretty good situations. Women's basketball, they moved on to other Power 5 spots. It's going to happen. And we'll see where these transfers go from softball. I'm not saying it's it's not natural to be disappointed when a prominent player may choose to leave, but to automatically jump to the conclusion that when it does happen, that it must be emblematic of a grander issue without any evidence to support that assertion is probably a little bit of a stretch. 
until and unless there is something to support that claim, then it is just pure speculation. Now, again, if there's anything to corroborate such a thought process, I'm certainly all ears from anyone and everyone. Do I hear things? Sure. Do I hear things at the moment that is in any way reflective of a bigger or grander issue? No. But if I had anything substantiated enough and corroborated enough to report, I would. And obviously I have before on any number of issues, programs, places, whatever the case may be. So to the issue of and the grander issue of player transfers, it's happened. It's going to continue to happen. And it's something that college sports, and that's college sports fans, that's college sports coaches, that's college sports players, that's college sports administrators, and frankly, even the NCAA itself. Everyone has to get used to, adjust to that reality that college athletes now have far greater movement and capability of movement in regard to transfer than they ever have before. That is being largely viewed as a good thing. However, are there either unintended or also, even with a good thing, the potential for some negative consequences, either to a program, to a player, or both? Yes. It happens, but it's something that the entire system has to get used to, and we'll see how it plays out in terms of where certain uh, transfers end up going, and the shoe's on the other foot as well. Look, Oregon may look to add some players via the portal. Frankly, Oregon softball's roster, as it stands today, entering the 2022 season, is still quite good. Has some major players back. Does it have some holes to fill? Yes. Does it have some areas to address and areas of great need? Yes. This team could still use more lefty bats in the lineup, in particular. Definitely needs a leadoff hitter and a high contact, high average, speedy leadoff hitter to replace Haley Cruz, preferably somewhere in the outfield, I would think. Sure. Could definitely use a power-hitting left-handed bat as well. Could certainly use, in my personal opinion, another power-pitching right-handed arm, in my own personal view. Do they have to have another pitcher? No, they're already you know, pretty well-stocked. Uh, and I'm just going on the players who are returning, not getting into the uh, incoming signees. But... Just like we saw with Oregon women's basketball where season ended and Kelly Graves was talking about liking what he had and wanted to stick with the players that he had and felt good about it. Well, wasn't planning to go to the portal, and then all of a sudden, all right, well, some changes happen, and then they hit up the portal. And when they did, they landed several all-conference players and a junior college All-American. So we'll see what happens for Oregon softball. And with that, that wraps up this edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. Uh, We'll join you again next week as we recap 
Oregon baseball's regional. And if they win in advance to a super regional, we'll take a look ahead to that as well. So until then, this is James Crepier for the Oregonian and Oregon Live signing off.